Bible, and you're going to go to John 2. We got out of John 1. We did it. Good job, team. Uh, John 2 is where we'll be this morning. As you're turning there and getting settled, I'd like to thank um, our elders who love and serve and care for this church in a lot of different ways, many of which you guys don't get to see, but I get to see, um, and they are men who love you deeply and care for you deeply and are constantly praying for you, constantly thinking and and trying to come up with ways to love and serve and and see our church grow, not only numerically, but but spiritually, to see us grow and mature in our faith. Um, I'm so thankful to have them in my life personally and to get to serve alongside them. Um, It is a a great honor and blessing. Um, And so, uh, Dave and Daniel, thank you for all the ways you serve us and love us and care for us and lead us. We very much appreciate it. So, um, like I said, we're going to be in John 2, and we're going to talk about signs. Signs point us to something. I think the most common sign that we deal with on a regular basis are traffic signs and street signs. Um, a couple nights ago, Sarah and I were out on a date, and we uh, were trying to find a parking garage that we had a spot in, um, and the directions uh, got us into Lower Wacker Drive. Uh, and so if you ever driven Lower Wacker Drive, you know it's not fun like regularly, but you put yourself on a time crunch, even worse. And at very quickly, the street signs in Lower Wacker just evaporate, and you're just driving around. And then your GPS stops working because you're underground, and you're just lost. And I got us lost because I need signs, and I didn't have any. Signs are helpful. Signs guide us. They point us in the way we are to go. They point us to something. So throughout the Gospel of John, we've talked about this a couple of times, there are lots of different settings, lots of different groupings. John has lots of different groups. We've talked about the witnesses. And now uh, this morning, we're going to see the first of the seven major signs of the glory of God, of Jesus revealing his nature and divinity to the world. And so we're going to look at sign number one, the very first one, the one that will establish everything else, the one that sets the tone for the ministry and work of Jesus, right? If we were talking about, um, not that I like to, but if we were talking about politics and you were starting a political campaign, that first stop on the campaign trail sets the tone for everything else, right? It's the thing that gets everyone excited and lets people know this is where we're headed. This is what to expect the rest of the way. So with that much importance on this event, With this being the first sign, the first public display, we're going to stick with the classic questions this morning to help guide the way we study this passage. We're going to stick with when and where, who, what, and why. We're going to spend the majority of our time on the latter two rather than the first two, Um, but that's where we're headed this morning. So why don't you, uh, we're going to pray, so, um, and then we'll jump in, so please bow your heads and, uh, and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you and to gather and engage with you. God, with just words, you spoke and creation happened. It wasn't chaos. It wasn't confusion. It was pure and orderly and perfect and detailed. Everywhere we look in this world, we see glimpses of you. We see your hand, we see your fingerprints, your reminders to us of your power and your authority. 
God, we have come here this morning for, with any number of different motivations and reasons, but ultimately we have gathered here together to worship you, to praise you, to bring glory and honor to you. We want to learn from you and learn about you. We want to be challenged by you and encouraged by you. Today is about you. It is your day. And God, we know there is none like you, no, not one. Lord, as we study, you have things you want to accomplish here. You have things you want to teach us and encourage us and remind us with. So, Lord, I pray that I get out of your way. I pray that you would remove the distractions that we can hear from you clearly and give us the boldness and the courage and the faith to respond when you call us to. Lord, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. We're going to be in John 2, uh, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So like I said, we're going to stick with the classic questions of kind of helping us understand what's going on in this uh, passage. So let's start with the when and the where, because John gives it to us right at the jump there. On the third day, we are at Cana in Galilee. On the third day, now if you're keeping track of all of from John 1, this would put us at day seven from the uh, events that originally transpired with the introduction of John the Baptist. So when we think about John's gospel, we start in the beginning, before the beginning, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We start before anything else existed, and then we flash forward, and we skip a whole lot of time. We skip the Red Sea, we skip the plagues, we skip the walls are tumbling down. We skip miracle after miracle. We skip God raining down manna from heaven. We skip all of that. We skip the virgin birth in John's gospel. We skip the wise man and the scar. All of that. We go all the way to John in the wilderness. And now here, we have seven continuous days that are, taken, that are tracked. John doesn't cover anything for thousands of years, but it's very particular to him that you get this seven days worth of information. And so here we are on the seventh day in Galilee. So, map day. So we're in Galilee. Galilee is a region, right? So we are in Cana, right here. Nazareth, where Jesus is from, is way down here. And then Bethsaida, which is uh, where Peter and Andrew are from, that's way over here. So he was probably over here, came on down, 
and he is now in Cana, okay? It's a short walk, it's a short trip, relatively speaking, from Nazareth to Cana. It's a pretty short trip from where Jesus grew up, which might explain why the invitation to him and his mother is given. Okay, so we got our where, we got our when. Told you, we're going quick. So let's talk about the who. Well, right at the top, we have the mother of Jesus was invited, Mary. Now, it would seem, based on how things transpire, that Mary has a vested interest in this wedding. Could be a close friend, a family member, relative, we aren't totally sure. But she's involved and invested in what's happening. It also says Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Who gets a plus five to a wedding? Right? Like, and this is three days late. We don't know when he got invited, but he added five dudes to his invitation, and everybody's just okay with it. And then we also have the bride and groom, obviously, right? Though they don't really play any role in the story other than they are having a wedding. And then right at the end of the passage, we have somebody known as the master of the feast. The master, uh, the master of the feast. It's a word. It's one word. And it's only used here in the New Testament. It's kind of hard to translate. Um, but it would be like the master of ceremonies. Kind of like the head waiter combined with an MC. Basically, he's in charge of keeping the party moving. He's in charge of making sure everything's in, everyone's enjoying themselves, things are going smoothly. He's basically a professional party goer. He keeps things on track. And before we go any further into the who or even the what and the why, there is one thing I want us to note and, and just realize here. Jesus got invited to a wedding. And if you read the Gospels, Jesus is with people a lot. He's regularly eating at someone's house or being invited to places to spend time with people. Jesus is with people a lot, and not just because he's with people a lot, but because he's invited. People want him around. It speaks to the humanity of Jesus, and not only the humanity of Jesus, but the character, the kind of person that he was. People wanted him around. People wanted them at their parties. People wanted them at their wedding. Why? Because of who he is because of his kindness, because of his consideration, the life and energy and love and joy and presence and fullness that he brings. He was not this, like, distant, secluded hermit, and he was also not, like, a strict, weirdly over-the-top religious Pharisee. He was a person who loved life. He was a person who engaged with the world around him, and he enjoyed celebrations. He enjoyed being with people. And he's there to celebrate and have a good time. He shows up because he was invited, because people want him there, and he goes to celebrate a wedding. Jesus enjoys fun. God enjoys fun. One of my good friends from college once said to me, God is the inventor of fun. And that's true. I mean, you have the Old Testament when God is giving the law and telling the Israelites, here's how to be a people, here's how to be my people. In the law, there are pages and pages, verses and verses, of instructions on how to celebrate well, how to celebrate different feasts, how to celebrate and mark different anniversaries and occasions because God wants us to have fun. He wants us to enjoy life. And I think that's a reality that sometimes we forget. The fact that we have the ability to enjoy things, that we are called to celebrate and enjoy life, enjoy things like a wedding, it's because God made them. God calls us to enjoy the creation he has given us. 
I think it's so interesting, these moments where we see Jesus just being a person at a wedding, having a good time. So let's talk about the what. Let's talk about it. We are at a wedding, and a wedding at that time is a huge thing for the town. It is a huge celebration. Basically, the town would shut down for all intents and purposes. A wedding celebration could last anywhere from 7 to 14 days. Basically, open house at the bride and groom's house. It wouldn't necessarily be continuous, but people are kind of popping in, in and out. And like I said, the town basically would shut down. Everyone's going to this party. It's kind of like a certain game that's happening later where a bunch of people just, everything just kind of shuts down for a while and everyone's doing it. That's kind of what a wedding was. And because of that, and there's no real RSVP, you know, there's no real like way to reserve your spot. You knew certain family members were coming, but when and how everybody was coming wasn't really all that clear. And so you, you just kind of had to be ready at all times for people to show up. You had to have a ridiculous amount of food and drink ready to go and available. And that's where the problem comes because we see in verse 3, the wine ran out. And the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. There's an old rabbinical teaching that says, without wine, there is no joy. And there's some truth there, man. In this, and in this culture, a culture of respect and reputation, to run out of wine at a wedding was disastrous. Right? For us today, if you are going to a party later on today, and, like, there's not enough pizza it might be a little embarrassing, but like no one's going to make a big deal of it, right? Like no one's going to make a huge event out of the situation because there's a little bit less food. Every time we do a church potluck, every time the days leading up to it, I am freaking out about whether or not we're going to have enough food. Every time. And every time we have more than enough and people go home with leftovers. But every time I'm worried that we're not going to be able to provide enough because I want people to have a good time and I want people to be taken care of. Here, in this culture, it wouldn't just be a little embarrassing if they ran out of wine. You would bring great dishonor and shame on you and your family. These are small towns. Cana is a small town. And pretty much everybody lives in the same place they grew up their whole lives. Nobody really moves and travels. You stay there for generations. And so if you were to mess this up, if the people were to run out of wine and the wedding feast just kind of ends, they would never live it down. And they would never live it down generationally. Their family would never live it down. They would be known as that family who screwed up that wedding forever. And so like I said, Mary seems to have a very vested interest in making this party continue and be a success as she comes to Jesus and tells him they have no wine. And then we get Jesus' response in verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I would not encourage you to call your mom woman. Probably won't end well. Just putting that out there. There is some historical conjecture. Okay, we got to make a distinction here. This is a Bible. Living, breathing, word of God. Truth, historical, real, good. There is historical conjecture. Filling in the blanks of what we don't have. Those things are different, right? 
Everyone understands? Okay. Historical conjecture would say that it, by this point in Jesus' life, Joseph is probably dead. We see Joseph when Mary is pregnant. The last we hear of Joseph is Jesus when he's 12 at the temple, right? And they lose Jesus. They lose the Son of God. And then you have Joseph there, and then you don't hear from him again. He's never mentioned again. And we know he's a good man. We know he's a follower of God, so he didn't run out. What everyone assumes happens is somewhere between 12 and now, Joseph has passed away. If that's the case, culturally speaking, the firstborn son is now the man of the family and is responsible to take care of his siblings and his mother. And we know from other Gospels, Jesus is referred to not only as the son of the carpenter, but a carpenter himself. He worked a trade. He worked with his hands. He made, he worked as a carpenter, right? And so Mary's and Jesus' relationship would have been one where he has taken care of his mom and had been for a while, which kind of speaks to why this issue comes up at the wedding and she naturally goes to Jesus with her concern and with this issue. And so she goes and she's making a request of Jesus, but she's making a request of Jesus without making a request, right? It's that relationship between mom and son where they can speak without speaking. She's asking without asking. And she's not just asking for him to run to the store and grab a couple more bottles of wine. She's asking for something much more significant and much more major. And Jesus knows what she is asking for. She wants him to get involved and to fix this in only a way that he can. And so Jesus responds in verse 4. And I'm sure those words and that response from Jesus might make you a little uncomfortable, right? Real quick quiz. Is Jesus mean? No. No trick questions. Is Jesus unkind? No. Is Jesus loving? Yes. Okay. So then we can deduce that what he is saying to her is not mean, it's not unkind, it's not unloving. But we also don't need to try and make this softer than it is because there are some, and there you can read different translations of this passage, and there are some who want to add in and make it dear woman. And there's some who want to try and soften this response from Jesus and make it basically say, like, dearest mother, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Don't worry your pretty little head. I got this. That's not what he's saying here. He says woman. It's abrupt. It's abrupt for us. It's abrupt in the original language. And that's intentional. For us, I think the, the, the best way, I mean, woman is fine. I think you could get away with probably translating it. It's akin to ma'am. It's not rude or, or biting, but it's distant and it's disconnected, right? It's not like familial mother-to-son language. There's a distance he's putting there. And I think he's doing that on purpose. He's putting a bit of distance between him and his mother. And that might seem, again, weird or harsh for us, but it's very much not. Why? Because of who Jesus is. Jesus is fully human, fully Mary's son, yes. Also, at the same time, fully and completely the God of all existence. 
And so while Mary is his mother, Jesus is showing her that now they are at a point where even the familial relationship between mother and son has to be secondary and subservient to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of all the world. His relationship to the Father supersedes everything else. He'll say as much in John 5, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. John 6, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus' relationship to the Father supersedes every other relationship on earth. Even his mother doesn't have the inside track, doesn't get special treatment. And so when he says, what does this have to do with me? It's an idiom, and he's basically saying to her, why are you pressing in on something you shouldn't be? This is not for you to decide how I act and respond. You're stepping into a place that you shouldn't be. He's teaching her that even though she is his mother, she needs to be able to come to Jesus just like everybody else for who he is, God in the flesh, the Savior of the world. And he says, my hour has not yet come. This is a phrase, right, John planting seeds. This is a phrase he will come back to over and again. It's a reference, there are references all throughout John to Jesus' hour. John 7, chapter 7, verse 30, chapter 8, verse 20, chapter 12, verse 23, 13, 1, 17, 1. He talks about his hour coming or having arrived over and over again. His hour, this moment he keeps referring to, is ultimately his death. That's the point. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is getting to his hour. He is getting to the cross. That's what Jesus is pursuing. His glory is displayed fully and completely in his death and resurrection, in his hour, and that hour hasn't arrived yet. Now, Jesus isn't saying no to her. We get that from her response and even the fact that he does do the miracle. What he's saying is, this is not the time for me to get the attention and glory. This is not look at Jesus' time. That time has not yet come. There is a time coming, a wedding feast coming, where wine will flow freely. An eternal celebration where Jesus, the bridegroom, will take his bride, the church. The celebration will be astounding, but he's saying that time is not yet. Now let's think about it from Mary's point of view. Because there's an immediate recalibration here that what happens between this, in this interaction. This is Jesus' mom. She carried him for nine months. She gave birth birth to him. She nursed him. She taught him. She watched him learn how to walk and taught him how to speak and how to eat. She raised this boy to be the man that is before her. But now she's got to recalibrate and realize the relationship between her and her son must change. And she knew this was coming, right? It tells us in Luke, as, as the angel told her things, and as the wise men showed up, and the shepherds proclaiming what they saw with the angels, it says Mary stored these things up and pondered on them. When she goes to the temple to dedicate him, and she stores these things up to ponder and reflect on them. This was not new. This was not, I can't believe this is happening. Mary knew this stuff was coming. But now, again, the relationship is shifting. And look at the humility with which he responds in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Jesus just had to rebuke his mom. He doesn't actually say he would do anything. He doesn't give her a yes or a no, really. But Mary responds with a faith in Jesus and in his ability to step into hard situations and broken situations and ugly situations and make them better. And he instructs the servants. She tells them, do whatever he says. She has no promise or guarantee that he's going to do anything to fix the situation. But she knows Jesus. She knows his compassion. She knows his character and the person that he is. She trusts that whatever he decides to do in this moment, whatever he tells the servants they should do, ultimately it will be good. See, the more you know who Jesus is, the more and more you can trust him. She tells the servants, respond and obey, do whatever he tells you. We don't have a lot of words from Mary. And I think in John's gospel, I think this is the last time we have words from Mary. I don't think she speaks again in this gospel. And if those are going to be your last words, those are good last words to have. Do whatever he tells you. Obey Jesus. That's a good word for us. And so Jesus and Mary have this interaction, and then we get to verse 6, and John gives us some details. He tells us about these six stone water jars. Each holds 20 or 30 gallons. That language right there, that lack of clarity, actually, I think, speaks to the authenticity of the account. John's writing many, many years later, right? And he's remembering. He's like, I, those jars were huge. They were like 20 or 30 gallons. I don't, I don't remember. They were really big. They were used for purification rituals, the washing of feet and hands with water before a meal and after a meal. If you touched something unclean, if you did something unclean, if you were in contact with someone else who did something unclean, you were constantly having to come back to these jars. Here's our jar. This one holds 1.5 gallons. I should have gotten one of those big, like, rain buckets. I couldn't fit it on my cool table. Constantly having to come back to these jars. Constantly having to wash and wash over and over again because you're never clean enough. Never clean for long enough. It's like trying to clean a house that has active kids in it. You're never really going to get it clean, and if you get it clean, it's going to be clean for about three minutes. That's what the Jewish purification system was. You were constantly having to wash, constantly having to clean. Now, Jesus could have performed this miracle in any way he so chose, but he particularly picks these jars. And we'll get into that in the why section. But Jesus tells the servants, take these huge jars and go fill them with water. This is no small task. This isn't go in the back and turn on the hose and fill them up. This is find a way to carry these giant stone jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons worth of water, huge barrels, find a way to get them all to the nearest well, however far that might be, send the pail down, pull the pail up, dump dump it into the jar, rinse and repeat over and over and over and over and over again. And do all of that, and then when you get these giant stone jars filled with 20 or 30 gallons of water, find a way to get them all back here, back to this house before this party turns sideways because the wine's run out. This was a major task that he has just asked these servants to do. Jesus didn't need them. He could have made the wine appear any number of different ways. He could have made the water appear any number of different ways. He could have filled them himself. But he invites the servants to be part of what he's doing. And by sharing in this, by sharing in the miracle, they share in the blessing. It says in verse 9, they knew what had happened, even if no one else did. 
how that must have stirred within them when they saw everything play out, when the master of ceremonies drinks it and the wine continues and how only just a couple of servants knew what had happened because it never tells us that Jesus actually gets any of the credit. He doesn't want any of the credit. But these servants were part of doing something miraculous. And not only did they obey, but they obeyed completely. Verse 7, it says they filled them up to the brim. They didn't know how full they needed to go. And with the weight of how big and how heavy these jars are, it would have been very easy for laziness to kick in, right? All right, we'll fill up the first two as high as we can. And then how much water could he possibly need? We'll just fill up enough so that we can get this back to the party. It's taken too much time. Let's just do just enough. If they would have done that, there would have been only just enough of the wine. They didn't know what was coming, but there would have been lacking. But instead, they fill them to the brim. This is the way we are supposed to respond and obey Jesus. Spurgeon said it this way, when you are bidden to believe in him, believe in him up to the brim. When you are told to love him, love him up to the brim. When you are commanded to serve him, serve him up to the brim. Jesus instructs the servants, once they have these things filled and back at the house, take some, go give it to the master of the feast. He drinks the water turned into wine. It's one of his jobs, make sure it's good and it should be served. He doesn't know where it came from, but he knows it's good. And that's what he tells the groom. He calls the groom over because it would have been the groom and his family who are responsible for the provisions. He calls the groom over and most people, he says, give the good stuff at the beginning. And then when everyone's had a little too much to drink, when everyone's a little bit drunk, they give out the cheaper stuff because nobody's paying attention. They can't tell the difference. But you, sir, your wine, this wine is the good wine, and it's here now, later on. This wedding has been saved with this good, good wine. So we got the who, or we got the where, and we got the when, we got the who and the what. Why is this here? Right? If we think of the grand scheme of all that Jesus is going to do in his ministry, the people he will heal, right? The, the lame will walk, the dumb will talk, the, the lepers are cleansed. He feeds 5,000, he walks on water, he raises Lazarus from the dead. In comparison to everything else, when we think of the miracles of Jesus, in comparison to everything else, this right here, adding some wine to make sure a party can keep going, seems inconsequential. John's gospel started in the beginning. Before the beginning, there was the word. He starts way back then, and then he fast forwards to this week. And after thinking about all these things for all these years, John says, this is the thing that needs to be shared. John is actually the only gospel. The wedding in Cana is only here. If it wasn't for John, we don't have this story. And the wedding in Canaan, water into wine, has become one of those things in the Bible that is in regular pop culture, right? Like, even if you didn't grow up in church, you know the idea of water into wine. And it's only here. These 11 verses, that's all we have. He's the, actually the only one who gives us the story. It stuck out to John. It mattered to him. Why? Why is this the first thing? Why is this the first sign? And how does it manifest Jesus' glory? We said before, it's a sign. It's not the thing unto itself. The, the miracle is cool. It's amazing. We don't even know how or when it transpired, but it's awesome. 
But it's not the thing. It sets the tone. It shows what's coming. It sets the tone for Jesus' ministry and for the gospel's continued influence in our world. It directs us to understanding who Jesus is, which is the ultimate goal of John's gospel, right? John 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I don't know if you've heard that verse before. It's a good one. You should remember it. The sign directs us to something else. It points us to understanding who Jesus is. And I got three ways it points us to who Jesus is. It's a sign that points us toward the generosity and compassion of Jesus. This sign from Jesus speaks to the generosity of our God and the care that he has for the lives of his creation. He doesn't just provide a little bit more wine or just enough wine to get through. He provides 120 to 180 gallons of wine. No matter how rowdy this party was going to get, they weren't drinking all that wine. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It is God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Because he is the creator and sustainer of all things and is in control of all things at all times. And he is all good. He is all righteous. He is all holy and all just. And his generosity then exceeds anything we could consider. He can shower blessing upon blessing because all of existence is his to do with as he pleases. Our God is a generous one. And our God is also compassionate and loving. The chance for Jesus to save an unnamed couple and their families from shame and suffering and some social pain is enough motivation for him to act and do something awesome. The chance to provide some joy and fun and make sure this celebration of something beautiful like marriage is enough reason for Jesus to move in a tangible, miraculous way. And the fact that he would get involved in a situation like this, making sure a wedding continues, shows us his love and compassion. We matter. Our lives matter to God. What we go through matters to God. And I think too often we forget that and we lose sight of that. And because of that, and we think we're just so insignificant, over time we convince ourselves that it doesn't really, what we go through doesn't really mean all that much. When it does matter very much to God. And over time, because we start to think that way and we start to think I'm so small, I'm so insignificant, God is so big. Yes, you are small. Yes, God is big. But you're not insignificant. And if you can walk down that road long enough, you're going to feel ignored or unimportant. And it causes with us, within us to withhold ourselves from God in prayer because we don't want to bug him. We don't want to bother him or interrupt him or annoy him with our petty problems. You don't have petty problems. You matter to God. Whatever it is you are dealing with, big and small, life-changing or ordinary, it matters to God because you matter to God. God is concerned with you with your personal, practical, and material situations and needs. He is concerned because of who he is and who you are to him. In Luke 11, Jesus is teaching, and he says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give 
the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. God is our Heavenly Father, and he is a good, good father, a good dad who wants to and enjoys caring for his children. When they cried out in Egypt, he rescued them. When they cried for food in the desert, he provided manna for them. When the crowds gathered and were listening to Jesus and they were hungry, he felt compassion toward them and he fed them. God cares about you because he is at his core a compassionate father who loves his children. You matter to him. This miracle is a sign that points us to the generosity and compassion of Jesus. And this miracle is a sign that points us to the cross. Again, Jesus didn't need these big old jugs, these big jars to do the miracle. He chose to use those stone jars on purpose. And John makes sure to tell us what they were used for, that they were used for the Jewish rites of purification. Now there's six jars there. Seven, in, uh, seven was considered to be the number of complete, the number of perfection and, and wholeness. So if seven is perfect and complete and whole, six was seen as a number of imperfection and incompleteness. It was lacking. The imperfect, incomplete nature of the law, of the ritualistic purification system, Jesus has come to complete and eliminate its need and provide the fact that he supersedes it. The water in the jars can only wash away the dirt externally. It can make you clean externally, but it's temporary and it doesn't get to the heart. It doesn't clean the inside. It doesn't remove the stain that sin has left on our souls. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, they were all about the external procedures and rituals. Wear your clothes this way. Eat these things, carry yourselves in, these, in this manner, and of course, wash, wash, wash. It became about presentation and perception while never treating the internal gunk and slime of sin. In Matthew 23, Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, you appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. This notion that we got to have it all together that we can earn, win, and work our way and make everything fine. It is a vicious and exhausting trap. Don't ever be honest with how you feel. Don't ever let them know how hurt or sad you are. Hide your tears, fix your makeup, bury your burdens deep down, and don't ever share them with anyone because you're a Christian and everything's supposed to be fine all the time. It's an exhausting performance, and it will leave you stuck and dead. It doesn't get to the issue. It doesn't get to the heart, and it never fixes anything. You can wash your hands as many times as you want, but as Lady Macbeth found out, there are certain spots that just won't get clean the more and more you run your hands together. What Jesus came to do was not bring another list of rules and regulations, but rather he says, look at the rules and regulations and see I am greater, and through me you can find true cleansing. I know we just got done with chapter 1, but I'm going to take you back to chapter 1 for just a minute. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When Moses was in Egypt, and the Israelites were slaves, one of the first things he does to prove the power of God is Moses, God through Moses, turns the water of the Nile into blood. Death. Death. 
The law shows us that our sin leads to death. That we are guilty and condemned under the law that demands perfection. It reveals to us our need for help, our need for a savior. Jesus takes the physical element of the system of the law. He takes these stone jars. He has it filled with water. Filled to the brim so nothing can be added. And he turns it into wine. Symbolic of life. He'll say as much in John 6 later on. Jesus will say, unless you drink his blood, you have no life in you. And what does he teach his disciples just hours before he is arrested? He's reclining at the table with his disciples. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Those jars were never going to wash you, anybody, and they were never going to clean anybody enough. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. John says it another way later on in Revelation 7, 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The need for the ritual, the need for the purification is over. Jesus' blood purifies us, washes us clean, that we have been found innocent and righteous before God if you have placed your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of him. At the cross, all sin, every sin was laid on him. He suffered and died for our sins in our place that we might receive forgiveness and life and hope. The work is over. It is finished. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. New life, new ways. What, where old water sat, new wine has arrived. The miracle is a sign that points us to the cross and the life that is there. This miracle is a sign that points us to joy and life. The master of the feast proclaims, you have kept the good wine until now. The best wine, the choice wine, the fullest and richest, it's here now. The party can continue, the celebration can continue, the joy and fun and enjoyment can continue. This is what Jesus came to do. Yes, he is the suffering servant, smitten, stricken, and afflicted. He is acquainted with grief in every way. He will endure pain upon pain like no one before and no one since. He will take up his cross. He will call us to take up our cross. But he did not come bringing nothing but doom and gloom. He is not a rain cloud for your parade. He comes to bring life, rich, full, deep life. That's what he's saying by turning the water into wine. He's calling them back. He says, do you understand what's coming in my day? The prophet Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 25. He's talking about the day of the Lord, and he says, on the mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away every tear from all faces, and the reproach, the shame of his people will be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Jesus begins his ministry celebrating at a wedding, and he uses it as an opportunity. He is the master teacher, constantly taking what we experience, taking the tangible, the human things that we know and can understand. And he says, there's something bigger going on here. And he points us to a future wedding celebration, the one his followers will enjoy at the end of days. When we, his bride, 
are joined forever with the bridegroom who loved us so much that he laid down his own life for us. Death and shame and pain will be swallowed up and gone, taken away. What will remain is joy, pure, untarnished joy. For his first sign, for the thing that gets everything else going, Jesus is declaring that he brings, as Timothy Keller said, festival joy. Deep, rich, full, satisfying satisfying joy. That's who our God is. He is the creator of fun. He does not come to burden and weigh you down with guilt and shame and never-ending spiritual chores that keep you from enjoying life. No, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The true master of the feast, the one who makes sure the party is the best it possibly can be, it's Jesus. He provides the life. He is the life and joy. The best wine is here now. It's the good news that Jesus brings. The perpetual washing, the need to keep coming back to the jars over and over again. Just try a little harder. Be a little better. Give a little more. Do a little more. It is never-ending, life-sucking exercise in futility. Every sin on him was laid. His death pays the way and gives us life. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Life in excess, life to the fullest, life at the brim and overflowing. The gospel is here and good news now for our lives here and now. Yes, one day we can look forward to that wedding feast. But until that day, we have the chance to live into the fullness and richness Christ has offered us now. Jesus says in John 15, if we abide in him, if we rest in him, if we dwell on him and rely on him and trust him for life, his joy will be in us and our joy will be full, filled to the brim of joy. To know Christ is to know a rich, deep full joy, even in the midst of the hardness of this life. This miracle is a sign pointing us to the joy and life found in Christ. Of course this is sign number one, because this is the tone setter. Compassion, love, generosity, salvation, joy, life, these are what Christ came to bring. These are the calling cards of Emmanuel, God with us. He's teaching his disciples, and he's teaching us today. He's reminding us of who he is and what he came to do and what he brings for us. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the set-apart one, the chosen one, the deliverer from Satan. He is the Son of God in control of all things at all times. He is the life-giving, chain-breaking, freedom-providing creator and sustainer and savior of all people. He is the originator and deliverer of joy. Not just for later, not just when circumstances will allow it, but here, now, and always. Life with Christ is a life with joy. This miracle is a sign. It's pointing us to the Christ, the Son of God, that we may believe. And by believing, we may have life, full, complete, rich, abundant life in his name, now and forever and ever. Amen and amen. Let's pray.
God, that we might be a people who actually live into the joy you have given us. It is so easy to be weighed down and burdened by life. Responsibilities and expectations, distractions and demands. If anybody is supposed to be the light of the world, if anyone's supposed to be a light of joy, it is the Christian who knows you personally and intimately. We know you. We've tasted and seen and know that you are good. God, let that taste never leave our lips, never leave our tongue. Let us constantly be driven by it. And as we know you more and more, may it stir in us more and more of a hunger and thirst to know you more and more. The life that is offered, the life that is given. God, help us to live into it now. God, it's so easy and convenient to fall into the idea of checklist and chores. If I do this, that, and the other thing, then God will like me, then God will love me, then God will accept me. It makes us feel like, it makes me feel like I got some control. It makes me feel like I'm bringing something to the table when in reality, God, we both know I'm the only, the only thing I'm bringing is my sin. God, may we be a people who walk away from the purification jars. We stop trying to fix ourselves and just do better, but rather fix our eyes on you and just focus on you and rest in and dwell in and enjoy and receive the grace and mercy that you have given us. God, you are enough. Remind us that you are enough. Let us know and live like you are enough because you are more than enough. God, we long for that day when we celebrate, when we enjoy that eternal, awesome wedding feast. But here and now, God, you have made us to be a people of joy, joy full to the brim. God, I pray that we would be people who actually live like that. And it's possible only because of and by your grace and provision and love and mercy. God, as we rediscover and re-remind ourselves the gospel of the gospel every day, let it spur in us and spark in us joy, unspeakable, over-the-top joy. And let that carry out into our relationships with others, into our relationships and interactions with the world around us that we might shine brightly as the lights of the world you have made us to be. We thank you and praise you. Amen.